I'm Jim Juno, and this is The Juno Files, where we talk with authors who write about movies, television, and everything in between. On December 8, 1980, the world was shaken when the news broke that former Beatle John Lennon had been assassinated outside his apartment complex in New York. Now a new book from Kenneth Womack entitled John Lennon 1980, A Year in the Life, traces the powerful, life-affirming story of the former Beatles' remarkable comeback after five years of self-imposed retirement. Lennon's final pivotal year would climax in several moments of creative triumph as he rediscovered his artistic self in dramatic fashion. With the release of Double Fantasy album and with his wife, Yoko Ono, he was poised and ready for an even brighter future only to be wrenched from the world by an assassin's bullets. John Lennon 1980 isn't about how the gifted songwriter died, but rather how he lived. Kenneth Womack talked with me about his newest book. Hello, Dr. Kenneth Womack. Welcome to the Juno Files. Very glad to be here with you today. Now, your new book is John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. I guess my first question, on December 8th this year, it's going to be the 40th anniversary of his assassination. Does it really seem like 40 years have gone by? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm like you. I feel like it was uh, the blink of an eye uh, since we got that terrible news. Um, and of course, the worst news uh, or, or the worst milestone in, in many ways won't be the, the birthday or the murder, but rather the day early next year when John will have been dead longer than he was alive. Exactly. I mean, because this October, uh, October 9th, I believe, is his would have been his 80th birthday, Correct. Correct. And and that's that's really that's really struck me because, yet like you said, next year will be will, that he will be dead longer than he had been alive. Um, now this is not this is not your first Beatles work. I mean, you've had fourteen books or was it fourteen years of research in the Beatles. That's right. I've been, I've been uh, uh, I published uh, an edited collection, and I, I like to do those as often as possible because it gives a way for other writers and scholars and historians to share their perspective. Uh, but yeah, I've, I've been spending 14 years, uh, really longer. Uh, I started this work around 2002 as a professional scholar, I guess. Um, but of course, I think like you, it goes back a lot longer than that, right? That we've been thinking about these kinds of issues. Now, this is um, this uh, particular book, everybody knows, is a seminal moment in time. Everybody knows where they were when they heard the news. I was still in college. It was, I believe it was a, a Friday night or, or Saturday night. No, it was a Monday night. It was a Monday night when we heard the news that John Lennon had been shot. Where were you when, when you heard the news? Well, it's uh, it's kind of a typical teenage story in a lot of ways. I was 14, and uh, I had gone to bed early for whatever reason. Um, I have no idea, but in any event, uh, I was laying up in bed, and uh, I can hear my father walking down the hallway. And you know how when you're a kid, you sort of become attuned to what your parents sound like when they're in the vicinity. Like I always knew where my mother was from her smoker's cough, right? Um, so. Uh, lo and behold, I could hear him walking down the hallway, and so I didn't want to be messed with. <laughs> this is also a very teenage thing, so I kind of ignored uh, when he looked into the door, and uh, you know, as I found out later, he had heard it on Monday Night Football. 
And the next morning when I, he was going to tell me about it, but of course, you know, for all he knew, I was asleep. Uh, and anyway, the next morning I woke up and there was a Houston Post on my, you know, on my breakfast plate. I remember when I was just coming in, my um, I had, my mother had worked nights at, at a cafe and I had just brought her in. I believe it was shortly before 11 or around there. And I was watching CNN. It was still it was still CNN news reporting at that time. And um, I remember the uh, female news reporter almost broke down on the air when she was reading it. Um, I guess that kind of I guess that kind of sums up the world's reaction, isn't it? It really does. And it was um, such a senseless, cruel, unthinkable thing, you know. And, and of course, this is true, whether it's John Lennon or, you know, a, a person who, you know, conducts their private life in the world and not doesn't bother anybody. You know, it, it was George Harrison who said to rob life is the ultimate robbery. And it was um, it was pretty crushing. We did a record club here last night at Monmouth University, and uh, we were doing Bruce Springsteen's The River. And of course, people were remembering December 9th when Bruce came out and said very famously, you know, we wouldn't be here tonight if it hadn't been for John Lennon. That's really true. Yes. And, and but in your book, though, it's not it is not about the assassination. This is something which I want to make clear to people. This is about the entire year. You start in December of 1979 um, or even a little bit before then, because um at that time, him and Yoko Ono were still, they, they just moved into the, uh, to the Dakota. And like you said in your book, you, you we wrote your book, is that they had to fight to live there, didn't they? Um, they did. Uh, and uh, I started on purpose much earlier than, um, than that final year. Uh, it wasn't originally my plan, but I, I made that discovery that <laughs> I should know by now that you know, to just leap into that year means foregoing all of the background story you need to tell to get there. So for that reason, um, I, I backed up and made sure that I covered all those earlier details. That's something I didn't realize is that, um, <clears throat> excuse me, that the people of one, the Dakota was not, I guess, would you want to want of a better term? It was not a premier apartment complex as it is today i mean they had their stars there yeah they had celebrities there but it was really it was really kind of run down wasn't it well less run down and more of a, a haven for artists and uh it had more of a bohemian set to it uh but you you know by the time john lennon and yoko ono lived there you already had you know lauren bacall uh leonard bernstein folks like that who did in fact live there so it was a regal address but it probably wasn't the same kind of regal address you'd think of today you know the john and yoko bought their apartment for you know double digit thousand dollars and of course all of those that level of apartment now is double digit million dollars so it's a great return on investment. Exactly. And and they bought up they bought up not just a single apartment, they bought up a, a whole suite. Uh, almost a whole floor, correct? Uh, no, it wasn't actually, you know, it's it has a huge footprint this building. It's a city, you know, it's essentially a city block. So, um, they had uh, they had a lot of apartments. They had 7 uh, at that time. Um, and uh, you know, that meant 
that they did have a good chunk of what would be the southwest corner of the building on the seventh floor. Um, but then they had a few other units in the building, too. But of course, those are the units you want, right? Because you've got the the beautiful views of the park, right? And and from what you what you was writing, is some of the people in there did not look kindly upon. Well, mainly Yoko Ono moving in. They they kind of liked John Lennon moving in, but not Yoko. Well, they really didn't like the idea of rock stars being there. You know that uh, um, they had gone co op some years before, and so they were getting somewhat snooty about things so it was that it was during that long period where they were going from you know a very well-heeled address into a superstar address and uh and there was some negative reaction what they what they ended up of course not liking very much at all was the number of fans who would hang out out front and i bet that had a lot to do with why for example uh billy joel wasn't approved to live there in 1980 because they already were contending with all of those Lennon fans who were out there, and uh, this just felt like so many more who would be there. One of the things you clear up in your book is that the years between 1975 and 1980, many people still cling to this to this uh, premise to this day that Lennon was a recluse. He was he was not going out. He was not recording, and he stayed in his hotel apartment rather all day. And that's not true, is it? I mean, he actually he actually lived a normal life. I would think it, it was as normal as it could be. Um, you know, obviously his existence uh, would not seem normal to any of us. Um, just with the magnifying glass he was under, uh, the amount of people who might be waiting for him outside, um, you know. But uh, yeah, he was. What, what always amazes me about that period. Uh, is just how how much smaller the world was. So, you know, you and I might have been watching a show like One Day at a Time, right? Or Fantasy Island or, you know, pick anything else from that period, Saturday Night Live. And there's a decent chance that he was watching it too. Uh, you know, it was just the world was smaller. Um, we didn't have 24-hour sports. And, you know, you referenced CNN. We really didn't have cable news at all like we do now. So, uh, it just was a smaller world. So maybe it was as more, more normal than we might think. That's right. I mean, and it was a major, I think there was only three major networks at that time, ABC, NBC, CBS. And so, yeah, you're right. I mean, it was, it was a whole different era in the way people lived their lives. No internet. So they went out to buy food. Uh, you know that, and, and Lennon lived a normal, as normal of a life as he could. Let me ask you about um, now the pre-1980, he had a creative dry spell. I mean, you wrote that his muse no longer talked to him. And, and that that was and it must have been frustrating for him. Oh, absolutely. And um, it was either that he had lost that kind of inspiration. And if he had, who could not understand? I mean, he'd been in that immigration fight forever and ever and ever. Uh, by this point, I exaggerate. Uh, there was also the protracted uh, Morris Levy uh, lawsuit. Um, there was the fact that he had spent a lot of hard years pursuing fame uh, with the Beatles. So if he were worn out and exhausted. I don't think anybody could blame him. Um, but the longer that that time period went on, too, you had the issue 
I guess I would say you had the issue of him needing to feel confident about his new material to bring it out into what was a really competitive world, you know. It was not, uh, you know, the late 1970s, 1980, those were very competitive years, and they would continue to be so for a while in that industry. Everybody was there. You had uh, disco was king. You had, um, you had new wave, and to a certain extent, punk. You had... Uh, a thriving pop music scene. You've got a thriving and up-and-coming electronic scene. You've got all the what we call now dinosaurs. You've got Paul McCartney and Elton John and Queen <laughs> uh, coming up uh, and, and always putting out new material. The Who. Led Zeppelin had an album in 79. Pink Floyd. So these are really competitive days, and it's a competitive period. And if he had misgivings about you know, throwing his wares into that pool, who could blame him? Now, you mentioned that Paul McCartney. I'm going to get to him in a second because there is something I want to talk about about him with you. Uh, but Lennon broke the, uh, I guess you want to say, broke through the uh, writer's block uh, on the trip to Bermuda when, when he had to take over the ship. Well, that was certainly an important moment for him, and it was one that he would cite a lot um, in interviews uh, toward the end of the year when they were doing the publicity blitz for Double Fantasy. But I would take issue with him. Uh, I think he started to really get through his writer's block in the fall of 1979 when he did his audio diary and he took on Dylan and he shared a lot of his most, uh, well, shared them with himself, uh, these really lacerating thoughts that he shared. And it's an interesting audio diary because one of the biggest targets is Dylan. And then he comes out with this song called Serve Yourself. And it's his attempt to, um, well, to excoriate Dylan for doing the song, Gotta Serve Somebody. But really after that, that really kind of opened the floodgates. Uh, but, you know, to be fair, he would say in the fall of 1980 that it was an amazing mo- moment on the boat. Yeah, I mean, he, I mean, it really was amazing. He did not have... Uh, did he have any sailing experience? He did, actually. Um, he and his assistant, Fred, were down in Palm uh, on Palm Beach Island in Florida. And uh, John had seen a boat called the Imagine, and it kind of piqued his interest in sailing. And they actually took a charter on it with Yoko and Sean. And then when he got back to New York, they had a new place out in Cold Spring Harbor that they'd been... Uh, I think they had it since around Thanksgiving from the previous year. And... Uh, they wanted to, uh, John wanted to spend some time out there learning how to sail. So he had Fred go and procure the right starter boat. And he had uh, very quickly uh, learned how to sail. They got him a, uh, an expert yachtsman by the name of Tyler Conies who came out to help. And uh, he was on his way. You know, he spent a lot of time. Uh, and occasionally he would go out of the harbor into Long Island Sound. So he was getting ready for that trip. Okay. Um, now, we mentioned Paul McCartney earlier now, but McCartney was almost inadvertently instrumental in getting Lennon, Lennon back in the uh, recording studio when Lennon heard his song coming up. And I saw it on Saturday Night Live for the first time. Um, but I, what was what was Lennon's reaction to that song? Well, it was uh, it was one of excitement. Um here is this song where Paul, who is just churning it out throughout the 70s, um, 
he does something a little different. He's got his voice has been verispeeded. Um, there are a lot of effects on the song. It's a, it's kind of a work of proto-electronica, I guess you could say if you wanted. Um, and uh, it, it surprised him. It was catchy. It had a bit of a reggae uh, kind of beat somewhere in the background. And John was hooked. And it helped him. Uh, I, I'm, and I'm doing some amateur you know, textual analysis here, but I would think it helped him to see Paul doing something different and, you know, not getting castigated for it. And of course it was a number one song. Well, double fantasy came out. A lot of people think it came out after he died, but it actually came out. Um, I want to say about two months before he was, before he was killed. It and was about 25 days. 25 days. Okay. I so think I, I knew. It was I'm sorry. No, it's worse than that. It's eight. It was, so it's three weeks, 18 days. Oh, okay. I knew it was before he, before he was killed. I'm going to yeah. change it again. 21 days, three weeks. There you oh. go. <laughs> we got to have this right for your podcast. So there you go. <laughs> I appreciate that. I really do. But double fantasy. I mean, the song that came out, the first release was, was starting over. And that whole song kind of was kind of like a catharsis for Lennon, wasn't it? Well, it was an important song for him. And, you know, compositionally, it's a very interesting example because you can hear uh, John working with these different song fragments as he puts together his ideas. And he would do this quite o quite often. But, yeah, the idea of starting over, uh, turning over a new leaf. He was very cognizant of his upcoming 40th birthday when he wrote that, did another thing called Life Begins at 40. So, um, you know, this big milestone was, was in front of him. And, and let's remember, it was a much bigger milestone back in 1980, you know, when people would turn 40. You know, they'd, you'd have a birthday party at your work and they'd show up with canes and wheelchairs and, you know, really give it to you um that wasn't the case that's not the case now but um you know john was really thinking about how how am i going to remake myself and make 1980 year one as he had tried to do in 1970 personally i thought that the, the single woman was the best song on his on that side as a personal opinion i mean I'm, it doesn't hold any weight outside of my own podcast you know but but what was his did you ever find out? Did he have a favorite song on on the uh, album? Wow, you know that's. Uh, I, I think his favorite song was the ex one that was exciting him in front of him, and of course that was "Walking on Thin Ice." That was a Yoko Ono song they worked on during the last week of his life. But as far as uh, "Double Fantasy," um, you know, he had strong attachments to the songs that he selected that were chosen for that record. Very strong attachments, and. Just judging by the sheer amount of time that went into it, I would almost have to say it was watching the wheels. He had spent uh, really more than a year easily thinking and refining and working on that song. I would guess that that held a certain level of power for him, but he may have loved Woman because that was one of his easiest compositions. He really believed uh, and would state it quite often that his favorite kind of work would be those songs that would come almost like a bolt out of the blue where he could um, write it very naturally, very organically, as opposed to needing to write a new song. And Woman, uh, he wrote very, very quickly on or around, I guess, July 5th, 1980 uh, in Bermuda. So it was one of the few songs that were started and finished in Bermuda. And, um, you know, so that may have also uh, given him... Uh, 
you know, great affection for that tune. I guess this, one of the saddest parts of all of this is um, we've all had many, many, 40 years, right, to, to acquaint ourselves with these songs, and we know them far better than probably he ever would or could have. You know, that's, you mentioned that, and that, that was bringing me to my next question. What, what I found saddest about reading your book was that Lennon had so much plans, so many plans for 1981 and beyond that it just seemed so unfair. Uh, I, I, I would agree with you. And, um, you know, the, the one overriding experience for me that, I'm, that, that I enjoyed thinking about while putting this together was very much about that issue. Um, and the fact that you could almost, there's a momentum in the air with his excitement and how he's looking forward and you know he's he sort of worked through some of the challenges that had been uh, uh, maligning him for so long you know some of those demons were being put to rest and there's just a palpable forward momentum and excitement I mean yeah it seemed like night and day from from before 1982 to what could have been in 1981 and beyond Personally, what do you think would have happened? What what road would he have taken, in your opinion? Wow, it's hard to say. I hope he would have uh, undertaken a tour, uh, because I think that, coupled with the Annie Leibovitz Rolling Stone cover story, could have had him literally on top of the charts for a while um, and uh, would have been gratifying for him. Um but, you know, it, it's hard to know. I, I do know this, and I think about this a lot. He really had gotten to a good place, uh, I think, emotionally and in terms of being an adult, I guess, at that point. It's a, my favorite scene in, in his story, and thankfully Yoko recorded it for us so we can, we can study it and understand it, was when they realized that the album was selling pretty slowly, you know, and she said I'm, she was very sorry, and she sort of, telling him that and he says it's okay we've got the family uh and it just breaks my heart uh, i choke up even now thinking about it because that's what mattered and i don't know that earlier john lennon's wouldn't would have come to those kinds of points so easily and quickly here comes the 64 dollar question do you think that he would have gotten back together with mccartney and harrison and ringo Starr? uh i uh what go ahead if he hadn't if things hadn't had been different i imagine they would have um uh only because everybody else ever has <laughs> at some point or another um uh, there was also of course the constant badgering about the reunion issues and um that was interesting too because the money kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger and it was heading toward a billion dollars uh even in 1980 so i imagine they would have at some point um you know, and, and we'll never know. It could have been wonderful. It could have been terrible. But I think the one thing we do know is what John Lennon said many, many times. We could get back together, but we won't we won't be the same band you saw walk out of the studio in August 1969. You know, a lot of water under the bridge were different people, different artists. And I think um, it's, it's hard to say how people might have felt about that. Um, I'm obviously very sorry about how his life ended uh, and how how it all came apart. But, um, you know, given that that's a fact, I think it's good that the Beatles 
have maintained this mystique, right, and didn't have some flimsy reunion uh, outside of, you know, for the anthology. They didn't have any flimsy reunion that would have soiled uh, their remarkable achievements. You know, a lot of those reunions come around and the music is lackluster and usually very plastic sounding. Um, you know, the 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 of the end in our ears uh, from Abbey Road is probably the better way for that story to come to a close. Yes. Now, now do you, are you working on any books now? I'm working with my friend Jason Krupa, who is a really great rock scholar, lives down in New Orleans. On uh, We're trying to finish up a book on um, the twin albums of the summer of 1970, All Things Must Pass and Layla. Oh. And we're working on... Um, uh, you know, as you, as I'm sure you know, they had many of the same band members, uh, very different productions. Um, ultimately, you know, George's is this big sprawling affair where they try out all these songs, triple album. And while Layla's a double album, Derek and the Dominoes knocks it off in about, a, what, two weeks uh, down in Miami. And it's more of a, I suppose, an emotional exorcism. Plus, you've got these two amazing guitarists and uh, Allman and Clapton uh, playing on that record. So that is amazing. Uh, yeah. So it's it's an interesting story. Uh, and of course, they both uh, aged very, very well, those two records. Well, Kenneth, it's been wonderful talking with you. And uh, the book is John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life. It You can find more information at KennethWomack.com. And or on Amazon or any of the online booksellers. Kenneth, again, thank you for being here today. Oh, thank you. It's a great pleasure to talk about this subject. Kenneth Womack is a world-renowned authority on the Beatles and their enduring cultural influence. His Beatles-related books include Long and Winding Roads, The Evolving Artistry of the Beatles, and The Cambridge Companion to the Beatles, which was named the Independent Music Book of the Year. You can find more information about the book, John Lennon, 1980, A Year in the Life, at KennethWomack.com. Until next time, I'm Jim Juno, and this has been The Juno Files. <laughs>